0: Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. This week on the podcast, I am joined by the multi-hyphenate Jeffrey Schnapp. Jeffrey is a faculty member at Harvard, where he teaches in the architecture department and is the chair in the Romance Languages and Comparative Literature Department. He is also the founder of MetaLab at Harvard and co-director of the Berkman Klein Center for Internet Society. He originally was trained as a medievalist and has written about everything from media, technology, architecture, design, and the history of the book. I was first introduced to Jeffrey's work when he co-authored The Electric Information Age book a couple years ago with Adam Michaels who was just recently on the podcast a couple weeks ago. As you can probably imagine from from that biography, this conversation is all over the place. Jeffrey's research is vast and spans disciplines. And I was really excited to talk to him about this work. In this episode, we talk about why he likes to call himself a knowledge designer and why the word design feels like the right word for so many of his interests. We also talk about his desire to subvert or to uh, discover new forms of scholarly discourse and how the form and content of his research is completely inseparable and how the two influence each other. This is a bit of a different type of conversation than I usually have on the podcast, but seems to tackle so many of the topics that come up so regularly. I'm a huge fan of Jeffrey and his work and just left this conversation with so much to think about. I think you'll really like this one too. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that I like to think of as the director's commentary for the podcast. Each month I share additional content, episode previews, and short essays and uh, thoughts related to the themes of the podcast. These memberships really help keep the podcast going, and I appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Jeffrey Schnapp. Bunch of things that you have written, rereading things, kind of reading interviews you've done, and I kind of want to start and ask you a really weird first question. And just, <laughs> you know, you're you're at a party, you're introducing yourself. What what do you call yourself? Like, how do you describe <laughs> what you do?
1: That's a it, uh, unfortunately, that is a really hard question because uh, I I do a, a lot of a lot of my activities belong to different realms of inquiry practice yeah. endeavor. Um, but I continue to, uh, at least persuade myself, if not the world, that actually they're very tightly interconnected and that okay. they form a cohesive whole. Uh, although sometimes I struggle with describing precisely what that cohesive <laughs> uh, element is, yeah. but I, I guess what I would say, um, uh, uh if I were to give the uh, the even sub-elevator length
0: okay. I love
1: answer it. to the question is, I would describe myself as an experimental humanist. Okay. In other words, I'm somebody who comes from an arts and humanities background who's deeply rooted in a set of historical disciplines. In my case, uh, I come from the literary sector in terms of my scholarly mm-hmm. earlier scholarly career, but I've always been thought of myself as a cultural historian, mm. but I'm not interested in just conventional forms of scholarly practice. I've always been interested in experimental practice. Right. Um, and uh, um, so that would be my sh- the, the really short version answer. Over the course of the years, I've increasingly uh, called myself a knowledge designer.
0: Oh, interesting. Be-
1: because within that word experimental, uh, what the core values are that um, uh, sometimes I, I feel inclined to, to specify a little bit more than just the word experimental, which could mean a, a, a pretty wide range of things, is <laughs> yeah. that what really intrigues me and engages me, both as a scholar and as a thinker and as somebody engaged in a number of different areas of uh, technology-based work and, and design practice is, um, is the whole question of the shapes and forms that Knowledge and culture could or should assume Mm -hmm. um, That Build on but diverge from the consecrated and tradition bound form so in the case of scholarly books, for example uh, One major area of my interest has been reimagining reinventing the scholarly book. So what does a a scholarly book look like that? uh, uh, that uh, has the kind of curb appeal or sex appeal Right the kinds of books you find in a design bookstore or a, a museum shop. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of, uh, let's say, the critical edition as mm-hmm. another yeah. scholarly genre that you know has a long history stretching back into the Renaissance. What would what does a digital scholarly edition look like, or how can we think about editions, critical editions of objects, uh, right. media objects that uh, aren't printed? based uh, artifacts. Um, it's really that whole sort of space of invention, creativity, you could call it, but it's creativity that's really anchored in a kind of deep engagement with different for- modes of inquiry and research. And um, um, so, so I, I have te- tended over the more recent years to speak of myself as a knowledge designer, and as much as uh the word design for me is a kind of translational practice. It's a practice that shuttles back and forth between, you know, the, the, the the world of research and the world of like propositions of, Mm -hmm. of, of modeling, of making fabrication. Um, and it's, um, um, but it's informed by, uh, by many different sort of the many different disciplinary streams that, uh, have been important. At least in my my own career, uh, and I guess if I were answering your question to an academic audience, I would say I'm a cultural historian. Okay. Uh, with trained yeah. as a medievalist, with a focus on 20, 20th century culture, principally Italian. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but but the reality is that that is a little bit of a deceptive response because right. my my deeper commitments are really to experimentation to um, uh, to design Mm -hmm. understood in this broad Mm -hmm. encompassing Mm -hmm. sense of the invention of new genres and forms. Um, and, uh, I guess with the word knowledge in the phrase knowledge design, I mean to allude to the fact that even though I'm quite interested in creative and expressive practice, more broadly artistic practice, I guess you could say that, uh, I'm pretty, even more interested and more committed in a sense to tackling what I see as one of the really defining problems of our era, which is that there's there's a lot of good information, there's a lot of knowledge, there's a lot of science, there's a lot of scholarship out there, but it, how do we make it matter? Mm. How do we invent the, the build the, the media platforms, build the models of communication, design the experiences that actually make scholarship and science matter and shape, reshape yeah. political, social, cultural conversations. Uh, and it, within that is also a task of producing new forms of knowledge right. and, and being an innovative creator of knowledge. But I don't really separate out those two things. For me, they're completely, the one is bound up in the other. And and I guess that's how I would position yeah. myself as so-called knowledge
0: designer. Uh, that's so interesting. And that was, like, that was such a great first answer because you've set up basically every other question that I (laughs) that I have for you um but that phrase knowledge designer I actually find really fascinating I haven't heard that term before and you started answering this but I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about about that word design and I I'm, I'm curious I I guess just to kind of not to make this a leading question, Mm -hmm. my experience in doing this podcast over the last couple years, and even just my experience of being a designer over the last 15 years, is that the more I practice design, the less I know what design is that, you know, I went into this profession with a really clear idea of what I thought design was and what a designer does. And the more I work, the bigger that definition gets. And so... And so now having knowledge designer, that's another new definition I can add to this. But I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about that word design and why that word or why the term designer feels like the right descriptor.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's, it's a it's, a, great question. Um, for me, uh, coming from the position that I come from, which mm-hmm. is uh, it, it, to not go into my whole biography at length, but just to... Mark, a couple of the key moments, like the, the, the most du- the direct place uh, that I came from was, of course, the university world, the scholarly community, mm-hmm. um, and so forth. I was a practicing visual artist for a number of years before oh, okay. I went I went to graduate school. Oh, and nice. I had always been interested in computation going back to high school years. So there were various strands in my own background that were buried and suppressed mm-hmm. through much of my scholarly career as a, as a literary historian and cultural historian. But um, for me, the word design, coming from where I do, is a word that, that messes with something that is a, a kind of built-in assumption in the scholarly community, uh, even in the humanities, which is that basically that there are these consecrated genres of these consecrated forms, whether they're the scholarly essay, the, the scholarly monograph, the mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, these various genres that have defined the modern history of scholarly practice and we basically don't mess with those that right. when you ask when you ask a research question no matter how immense or how microscopic it is the assumption is that whatever the modes of inquiry are involved whatever the scale they all fit into those molds those right. consecrated molds and um somewhere in the 1990s as i was teaching at stanford at the time uh, very stimulated by what was happening in the startup community, and the creative mm-hmm, community mm-hmm. in San Francisco. I, I really started getting increasingly impatient and bored with those molds and thinking that there were some really exciting adventures that were taking place that weren't about technology, but that were certainly enabled by shifts in digital media uh, and technology. And that what they really opened up was a kind of Pandora's box or an era of opportunity, depending on how you look at it, with right. respect to what scholarship is as a practice and who it speaks to and how it speaks and what 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 languages it speaks and uh, the distribution networks and conduits, the channels along which uh, mm-hmm. such forms might have a future life, uh, maybe a very a, a highly expanded, different kind of, of life. And um, the the word design kind of came to me in the midst of that as a word that connotes a kind of what I I would like to say in the most positive sense, uh, kind of contaminated practice. In other words, (laughs) where where one one is always by definition almost in this kind of unstable middle middle ground between Mm -hmm. research with a capital R and making and practice and fabrication on the other side, like stuff where you get your hands dirty, and you've got a place a bed and put a stake in the ground, and, right. and and basically model something, not just discuss it or theorize it. And so, um, for me, that um, uh, that middle space, that kind of translational space, um, really made a lot of sense for describing a very different relationship between the sort of pure and the applied. Mm-hmm. Um, that suggested a kind of feedback loop structure like I was describing before, where even before you can ask a research question, you're always already thinking about the the various outputs that right. would be most appropriate to a particular challenge on the research side, where the, the whole question of form and content is, is so completely, deeply intertwined, the one with the other, that um, that every research question becomes a design question.
0: That's uh, interesting. And
1: yeah, uh, yeah so uh, I mean, for me, design came into the picture in that in that context. The the uh, the word knowledge attached to design was really a a kind of uh, a, a conceit that uh, I came up with because a friend of mine invited me to a conference whose uh, pretext was a wonderfully inventive one, which was. She invited a dozen people who are widely recognized as innovators in their field to invent a discipline that should exist.
0: <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, That's amazing.
1: It was an amazing opportunity. And it was yeah. that, that I, as sort of as a joke, <laughs> I thought, well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I've been yeah. looking for this this category. At the time, people were tagging me as a digital humanist. And mm-hmm. I, I don't like either of those words very much, either okay. digital or humanist. Okay. Um, And uh, and so I thought, well, it'll be this will be really fun. I'll make up this discipline that um, brings together two words I do care about and that do something that neither digital nor humanist does for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And once I gave this talk and um, basically in the wake of it, started ruminating about, okay, you know, what next? I realized that actually I I really did like the label and that I should (laughs) I should. Put some muscle behind it and not just make it a one-time uh, right. gest- gesture. So I've, I've come over the course of time to to not only uh, to, to, to try to better articulate what I think of as uh, knowledge design, but also to write a few theoretical statements on the subject and to try to disseminate it as at least one, one other concept of the way in which design plays in this really key intermediate gray zone uh, between theory and practice and um, for me at least it's been it's been useful to try to carve out uh, what admittedly is a somewhat eccentric space of practice at least eccentric with respect to academic traditional academic disciplines
0: yeah yeah Yeah. I have I have a I I don't mean for this question to be too specific but I'm what you're saying about kind of uh, form and content and how you can't separate those and how in especially in academic environments there are these forms that you always stick to and you know you mentioned at the beginning how diverse your research topics are are you when you start researching something or you get excited about a topic are you're thinking about where this is going right away like like how you're going to distribute it what's the form it's going to take it's not, I'm going to do this research and then I'm going to craft an essay, put it in a book, whatever. You're thinking about that immediately.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I can give you concrete examples. I mean, um, most of the books I write, um, the writing is actually not just written to design, but the design is designed for the writing. That was
0: my next question. Um,
1: yeah. So, you know, the Electric Information Age book would be a perfect example. Yeah, exactly. So Adam, Adam and I... Um, even before any of the book was written uh, spent a lot of time thinking about how we wanted this book as a physical object mm-hmm. to interact with its objects of study to really be contaminated in, in the most fundamental sense, to be exactly the same scale, to have the same kind of binding, to to have a feel of the very objects that the, the book is in a sense, historicizing right. and, and re- whose history it's reconstructing and to find a, a a, a nice design language, but also a kind of verbal tone, a texture that would uh, uh, somehow speak the same language as those books like right. play, be, be a responsible scholarly, archivally grounded piece of research, but one that had a kind of playfulness mm-hmm. and uh, a, a sort of effervescence, if you like, that um, that that's somehow dialogued with the, the genre of books that um, it analyzes. so, That's a, that's a perfect example. And that, of course, the collaboration with Adam was really crucial to achieving that. And we, you know, even as I was writing the main bulk of the essay, I was constantly sending Adam sections. He was sending me concepts for the uh, page layouts, designs. I would go in there and tweak them or make, you know, make, uh, design suggestions. Neither of us stayed in our lane, so to speak. And, and that's the kind of, those are the kinds of collaborations I really love. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like, um, getting to, to, you know, in a sense mixing it up in that way where there aren't clear kind of partitioned roles. And similarly in, uh, the, the last book, uh, Main major book that I've done, which is this uh, book called Futur Piaggio, which is oh, a yeah. a bolted uh, book that's a, a kind of re-edition of, uh, a, a kind of reprise of Fortunato de Pero's famous uh, right. an- anthology uh, in the form of a bolted book, but that combines with that format, a format that was borrowed from the Olivetti uh, design notebooks, the red oh, note yeah, notebooks, yeah. Uh, folded French fold pages that are underprinted uh, on both sides and semi opaque. So there's all these kinds of spatial, uh, subtleties to the way the book unfolds that also we Daniela Leda, who's my collaborator in Milan. And I spent a lot of time really just elaborating the concept and thinking about the scale of the different arguments. So every in short, in, in response to your question, every component of the, the authoring process is always already being integrated into a design concept that includes everything from supports for the book, extensions of it, to right. really the nuts and bolts of typeface, page layout, the basically visual rhythms of the book. Uh, you know, we, we we really like to get get our hands dirty around the. Uh, All of those component elements uh, as part and parcel of the authoring process.
0: Yeah, you know This is reminding me of two Two things that may or may not be related But I kind of just want to tell you about them and see if it sparks anything (laughs) that you want to talk about Um, uh, uh, A couple years ago. I got really into uh, In my research really into this idea of neutrality in graphic design and that somehow you know, especially the like the Swiss modernists that that Helvetica and grids was somehow uh, neutral, and how that has gotten kind of distorted or or kind of co-opted over the years. And then comparing that to something like Facebook that sees itself as a neutral platform. And then, you know, and then you see the 2016 election and how these ideas of neutrality, that the forms, that the containers of this content is somehow neutral just isn't true and probably has never been true. And, and so I'm, I, I guess the question that I'm getting at or, or what I would love to hear you talk about is how does thinking about the form while you're researching, how does that change how you research, how you write, how, mm-hmm. how an audience receives it because it, it doesn't just change it doesn't just make it not a academic paper it changes everything
1: <laughs> yeah yeah no absolutely um yeah i think about this uh, this a lot and uh yeah i think you know what's interesting to me about this kind of very constrained process where on the one hand the role of the so-called author you mm-hmm. know the, yeah. the scholar historian slash author um has been expanded in as right. much as now we're thinking not just about how we assemble a bunch of materials and then how we interpret analyze and and transform that corpus of materials into an argument uh, an interpretation a story mm-hmm. so to speak but also how we in a sense design the whole cont- the whole conveyor right. system the the the
0: yeah the,
1: the device itself that's going to support in a sense that um, process. Um, on the other hand, of course, we're also constraining and limiting that authorial role by saying, once you make these choices, um, you no longer have an infinite number of pages to make <laughs> your argument. Right, yeah. You may only have uh, you know, space for 300 characters.
0: <laughs> right, right. Uh,
1: that's what we allotted. Uh, figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually find that that kind of interplay of freedom and constraint is uh, tremendously fruitful for myself um, oh. and have always uh, been interested in the interplay between short and long forms of argument. So uh, one of the things I've tried to do also in my own work is uh, uh, I, I run a publishing series that was formerly at the Harvard University Press has now moved to MIT called the Metal Lab Project Series. Right. Similarly, to experiment with Kind of hybrid models of scholarly argument that that shift back and forth between short short form and long form mm-hmm. uh, forms of uh, discourse, and um, um, so I, I think that the, that 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 kind of process is a uh, it's a different process than the conventional one where the schol- the assumption in certainly the scholarly community is if I need 100 pages to make a particular argument, they are available to me, whether or not a publisher will ever want to publish a <laughs> chapter of 100 pages. Right. Um, there's, a, there's an assumption of uh, long duration of the knowledge that's that's communicated and, and created and communicated. There's an assumption of absolute freedom in terms of the scale. Um, there's a whole series of those kinds of assumptions that change uh, when right. you shift. Um, and that's one reason why certainly people who have been successful and are used to those sort of conventional practices have no particular incentive to change there. Of course, so there are consequences when one decides not to change. One of them is that most scholarly books have a very limited audience. Right, um, so right. if one of your ambitions is to make the kinds of knowledge that you create important, significant, available, uh, you may find yourself in a very con- constrained distribution system. Um, And uh, so for me, one of the opportunity areas in moving into this uh, more playful, more uh, free and constrained uh, model of authorship is precisely the, the opportunity to reinvent the audience for forms of, uh, of scholarship and uh, not just scholarship, but uh, argument that otherwise live in silos and in very, very, you know, largely invisible uh, environments, and to make them matter in ways that mm-hmm. uh, extend their reach and their their compass. So, um, so yeah, I think there there there's definitely um, there are sacrifices involved, and um, but I always underscored to my academic colleagues that uh, it's not an either-or proposition. You don't have right. to give up. Right. When when appropriate <laughs> or necessary, uh, mm-hmm. um, con- traditional forms uh, alongside these other kinds of ventures. But um, uh, on the contrary, sometimes the most interesting design challenges are how to integrate very conventional document, conventionally documented, footnoted forms of narrative and argument with other forms that maybe can be experienced in very short time frames uh, that don't require the same kinds of forms of attention on the part of audiences. I find those kinds of challenges, this kind of multi-channel approach to scholarly communication, let's call it that, um, really to be a really interesting uh, design challenge. And a lot of what my lab at Harvard does uh, is connected in one way or another to that question.
0: Yeah, I love and I love that you brought in you brought up metalab there because that was something I wanted to talk to you about um, because it seems like it's exactly what what you mentioned right at the beginning about kind of bridging theory and practice and and metalab seems like that's its whole goal is to not leave these in academia but to actually kind of put them out into the world and so I have I, I guess I have kind of two questions there and one is a very kind of simple question and then one is maybe a little more abstract but just for for listeners who don't know what MetaLab is um and even for me and and I, I feel like i have a little bit of a fuzzy understanding of it could you kind of talk about what MetaLab is and how it works and then mm-hmm. the the bigger question is can you just talk more about your goals for that project and, and kind of how that operates within both your practice but then also within harvard
1: yeah um yeah so uh Basically, it, during uh, from 1999 to 2009, I, w- when I was at, I was still at Stanford, I uh, started up a, a, an experimental platform called the Stanford Humanities Laboratory. Um, and that was really meant as a kind of platform that um, in many ways anticipates what MetaLab Lab does. It was a, a kind of bridge between the, the School of Engineering um, and the Arts and Humanities at Stanford. Uh, we were really interested in two or three domains that remain certainly central to metal lab one of them is uh uh the whole issue of large-scale collaborative Mm. kinds of models of research and and scholarly work in the humanities so the word laboratory you know again signals a shift away from the kind of individualized artisanal Mm -hmm. model of traditional humanities work Uh, another has to do with public facing forms of scholarship particularly focused on links to museums, archives, and libraries. And the third uh, was uh, a kind of different model of pedagogy in the arts and humanities that's hands-on, got the kind of studio model brought mm-hmm. into the, the seminar world. of
0: the arts. Oh, that's and interesting, yeah.
1: Um, and so when I came to Harvard, and Harvard wanted to sort of create a similar kind of structure, we didn't want to call it the Digital Humanities Center or something like that. I, I already explained I'm not huge fan of that label even though it's a useful label within right. the academy at least um and uh, the uh so i deliberately chose the the title metalab because it doesn't actually because it's <laughs> right, right, <laughs> um, right, yeah. it suggests going meta yeah. and it suggests the laboratory right um and uh <laughs> the uh but but really under that label, the self-description that we use today, at least, whether it's an adequate one or not, is we call ourselves an idea foundry, (laughs) a knowledge design lab, and a production studio. And even though that's a bit of a mouthful, what's meant to be suggested there is we are people who mostly come from the art design and humanities world. Uh, We are committed to research. And uh, to uh, to ideation, mm-hmm. to uh, to exploring concepts, but not in a purely theoretical sort of ten thousand foot level way. Right. But we make stuff. We are a production studio. We we get from the world of ideas down into the hands-on nitty-gritty, dirty stuff of like fabricating physical installations there's software platforms and all kinds of digital media work in between but it's a spectrum that runs from the traditional concerns of the arts and humanities in the pu- in a pure research mode all the way down to like production the nitty-gritty of, of production so knowledge design is in the middle there yeah to suggest that that's the compass of that activity, so we're basically a, it's a small lab structure within the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard, which is the perfect community at Harvard. It's, it uh, the Berkman Center uh, has you know been around for about fifteen years now. It's where Creative Commons was born. Mm. It's uh, a center that started in the Harvard Law School, but has grown to become the university-wide platform for uh, people both inside and outside of Harvard. Who are engaged in thinking about the internet as a kind of civic space thinking about the um, right pretty much everything that has to do with uh, digital culture and politics from security to intellectual property to uh aspects of activism uh today throughout the world and um and so uh, within that structure middle is one of the units where the kind of design and you know humanities unit uh we're a mix of what we call creative technologists, uh, Okay, but they're, they're, mostly people who are trained in architecture design, but who are self-trained as, uh, as programmers. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, um, a couple of folks who are more on the research side, mm-hmm. uh, and a couple of folks who come from the art, from arts, different areas of arts practice. Uh, so, uh, and some, it's, it's mostly students, uh, okay. and a couple of staff people and it's, the, the everyday reality of it is a portfolio of projects that we uh, we work on uh, together. Everybody's involved in everything to, su- to, to some degree. And the span extends from the building of a uh, software platform we're, tra- we're testing out at the university this semester and next. That's a, a whole new kind of d- data visualization driven course discovery and exploration huh. platform. Yeah. So uh, a kind of institutional project, if you oh, like. Wow. Yeah to uh you know art pieces uh interactive uh art pieces one was uh just at MozFest in London nice. uh, uh and uh a couple were installed at uh Ars Electronica in Linz Austria over the summer um, to uh, book a publishing series uh, as I mentioned before yeah um, basically scholarly interventions in different topics that are we think of it, or I think of as germane to the our, our core commitments and I would say our overall our work tends to be focused again a, a lot like the humanities lab at Stanford really on kind of reimagining museums libraries and archives as these kind of institutions that are at the core of the network mm-hmm of knowledge making, culture making, sort of points of contact between di- audiences and and uh, researchers, um, and as places of training, of course, right. of education. So um, we tend to be focused on partnerships with those kinds of partners. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so it's a, in short, it's a, it's a platform with an experimental focus. Um, where I think certainly what differentiates us from a conventional digital humanities kind of environment is we're not necessarily focused on just liter- lit you know, text. Right, right. Or, uh, we really think of our practice as a creative practice, but our content, so to speak, is often scholarly content. Uh, yeah. Uh, historical archives, uh, philosophical arguments, uh, theoretical questions translated into some uh, the, the, a, a designed experience or an interactive right. experience right. or yeah. So it's it's again in this kind of interstitial space, I would say.
0: And so, how do you either either how do you personally or or the the group collectively decide where your focus is going to be? Like, how does the lab decide? what it's going to work on because I imagine I mean just based on on your range of interests and then you have you know two dozen (laughs) students this could go any number of ways How, how does how do you start to focus that or or start to to kind of create a working environment where where some of some of these projects can go really deep on on these topics
1: yeah um so um we we try to keep the group really small. Actually, that the, the first answer is is keeping small. <laughs>
0: right, right, right.
1: Um, so, the actual core team uh, is n- never more than ten people, usually closer to five people. Oh, okay. And um, and typically, projects come come about in a number of ways, but but typically they kind of bubble up through individuals oh, nice. within within that core group. Uh, um uh, and uh as i said everybody sort of is involved in every project but typically there's somebody who's the lead on the project and a couple of other folks will join the 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 lab but as a member of that particular project team that doesn't mean that they'll be involved in everyday you know sort of s- central staffing of, of the lab and so we're really a portfolio of projects but we, we keep the the core group small and we keep the number of projects relatively small. Um, So yeah, I would say it's really the chemistry of this somewhat loosely structured, you know, uh, collective, but very small collective that um, Mm -hmm. kind of keeps us from going off the rails with too many things. We try to keep keep the the portfolio pretty tightly focused. As I said, museums, archives, and libraries, almost all of our projects map onto those three institutions. We have a couple, I I would say an emerging interest that has become increasingly central, especially over the last couple of years on kind of the environment, environmental Mm -hmm. data. Um, uh, There's one project in particular that my colleagues Keith Hartwig and uh, Matthew Battles have been focusing on called invasive spirits, which uh, mm. is focused on uh, using invasive species and brewing and fermentation processes. Oh, interesting! To to, um, to, to kind of drive conversations about immigration, right? Uh, huh. words, to, use, to use creative but lateral ways into hot button, yeah, like contemporary social topics. But we're also more broadly interested in Botanical Gardens and arborita and the whole question of how we can re-curate and reimagine the experience of you know these these living collections huh. uh, in ways that uh, we've experimented with in uh, museums and galleries so um, So th- there, there's almost always a pretty tightly wound, you know set of core mm-hmm. issues and we try to keep our focus on uh, on no more than a couple of projects at a time, and and it's a very fragile structure, but it, it, it's also it's also an agile structure.
0: So, right, right. I,
1: I don't think my experience at Stanford taught me that you can't have it both ways. You <laughs> yeah. need to, if you want to be agile, you have to be a little bit fragile.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I love that.
1: <laughs> and um, and 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 that's uh, so. So we 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 don't get a lot of support, direct funding support from uh, Harvard per se. Mm we we rely a great deal upon going out and and writing grants and
0: bringing oh, interesting project based yeah. funding
1: into the mix to su- support the community mm-hmm. uh but we do get a, just enough like minimal <laughs> kind of infrastructure funding to, to stay afloat
0: yeah yeah it's that kind of delicate
1: balancing act that characterizes Metalab lab as a as a structure so we're we're part of the berkman center uh, our admin support and so forth comes from the Berkman Center, uh, but we're physically housed at the School of Design because the School of Design likes us, and we, and we contribute to the curriculum
0: uh, yeah, yeah. in
1: various ways. I teach one course a year in the School of Design, and my colleagues participate often in events and initiatives. They serve on review boards and juries and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, and, uh, and then more broadly, we speak to Harvard as a whole. But through our our role in the Berkman Center, so it's a little bit of a delicate balancing act. But it's uh, I think it's it's worked reasonably well for the years that we've
0: been. It seems like it, yeah,
1: for five years or so. And and there's a lot of renewal in terms of the group also because people come and go. Right. We we don't really have you know a robust enough structure that we can have like three staff positions. Right. 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 Everything. Everything is on soft money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like running a design practice.
0: Right, right. Yeah. It, it sounds very familiar. <laughs> um I wanna I could I could talk about Meta Lab for the rest of this conversation. I, I find it such a fascinating structure, but I, I do wanna kind of take some of that and, and pull back a little bit and talk about this a little more generally. And and you mentioned I don't exactly know how to phrase the question I'm going to try to ask, so I'm going to take a stab at it and okay. we can kind of go from there. Cause you've mentioned a couple of times that you don't like this phrase, digital humanities, um, or, in you know, or humanities even. Um, and I had watched a, a short video on, on YouTube in preparing for this where you were talking about the digital humanities. And the, I, I'm curious about somebody like yourself, who comes from a, a literature background, literary criticism, uh, medievalist taking those things and then your research in architecture and design and the built world the connections or the parallels there or how how mm-hmm. i mean yeah you you, you get, kind of get what i'm getting at how, how yeah, does that yeah. background kind of influence the way you're thinking about these things today
1: yeah well it I um first of all i can reassure you it does (laughs) as a first point yeah Uh, but um yeah and actually i think as i said i think digital humanities has been an incredibly valuable phrase because Mm -hmm. it's allowed it's created a a kind of grouping that might be a little bit artificial but all groupings have a kind of artifice to them um it's one that's been useful in terms of certainly the conversation about innovation in the humanities disciplines. And, uh, so it's not that I reject it completely wholesale. Right. I just, I, I just find that it kind of misframes frames what I think of for, at least for me, not for the rest of the community that falls under that general rubric of digital humanities might not be the case at all, but, uh, I, first of all, even though I, my training is literary, I've always been particularly focused on visual mm, visual right. culture. Okay. And the kind of work that Metalab does, and this was true of the humanities lab at Stanford, was also, I think, preponderantly focused on um, on visual media. Um, and uh, there are various reasons for that. But I, I find that uh, the word digital in digital humanities, for me, suggests it gives too much agency to the technologies and not enough emphasis on the fact that what really is at the core of this is an experimental turn. It's not the digital per se. Mm -hmm. It's rather opening up the, 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 these very, you know, rich questions about what a scholarly argument is and how should it be authored, so to speak, and how, what kinds of forms, are appropriate to our era versus hundred years ago? Um, And where should one encounter and how, and what medium and what forms? Uh, And and what do we want? The reading of learned forms of argumentation. What kind of experience do we want to design uh, uh, that is suitable or meaningful or maybe increases the legibility or the impact of these forms? Like those kinds of questions I think um, are 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 not suggested by the label right. digital humanities because it seems to suggest that somehow, well, we're just taking the humanities and we're adding digital methodology, right? right, right. right? Which, which is perfectly fine. There's um, I'm, nobody. I'm not going to <laughs> protest that uh, <laughs> uh, as a move. It's just it doesn't capture the what seems to me the important mm-hmm. narrative. The word humanities, I think, in part is makes me uh it, I'm, I'm not that enthusiastic about because once you start opening up the kind of work you do to experimentation you realize that the boundary lines between these large disciplinary clusters are extremely permeable like once you get real your hands dirty working with databases sometimes it, you know the the best data set is a natural science data set mm-hmm. and they are very cool and important and uh uh, critical things you can do with those data sets once you know how to do things with data sets, um, and therefore, I, I I don't see any reason why this experimental turn should naturally limit it. It, it imposes its boundary lines. The the,
0: the right the, right
1: the, the the humanistic because some of the most exciting innovative areas in the humanities, like in any disciplinary domain, um, happen at the edges between you know, social sciences, humanities, natural sciences, who cares, you know, what <laughs> the real question is, where are the interesting areas of opportunity in, in, in my mind? Um, so uh, uh, I, uh, that's, that's my hesitation about that particular right. label. But uh, so uh, I came to scholarly work, as I said, after a number of years as a practicing visual artist, somebody whose I think, principal interests were in the visual arts. Um, but had language skills right. uh, yeah. and had accumulated a lot of baggage that hadn't really come together. Um, and uh, in the course of my scholarly career as a graduate student, uh, the most uh, amazing Dazzling minds that I encountered just by sheer serendipity were medievalists. So, because I had the languages, I ended up following in their trail.
0: Oh, um, wow! Yeah.
1: And uh, one of the things about being a medievalist that I've never regretted, in terms of my own path, because I could just as easily have focused on 20th century uh, culture from the start, was you know that when you work in a pre-print uh, kind of cultural environment, the sort of medium specificity, if you like, of high medieval manuscript culture is you know, highly visual, mm-hmm. uh, the The larger system of cultural communication was one in which a lot of what becomes assumed as we move into the print era, especially the, the era of industrial print in the 19th century, was not at all the case in the Middle Ages. And right. uh, it a lot of the strangeness, if you like, of medieval culture really, you know, is is very it's kind of prophetic in a sense that like there's certain elements of modernity that are almost impossible to conceive of without an understanding of, of the really transformative events that happened back in the 12th 13th 14th centuries. So uh, for me it the the skill set that comes with working first of all on this very you know this distant and very difficult corpus of materials to work with difficult in terms of often the fragmentary state or the material state of a lot of the right texts that you work with, also difficult just because it's culturally remote, um, I I think was really a valuable intellectual experience that I try to bring to the study of much more close and familiar stuff.
0: So when
1: when I've been, you know, mostly over the last 15, 20 years, I've been a 20th century cultural historian. Um, I think if I bring something that's a superior skill set to whatever degree I do, to the analysis of architecture, or history of engineering, or industrial design, it's because I've been trained never to assume that I have access to the meaning of anything.
0: Right, right. Uh, which,
1: which is a core assumption when you work with medieval Latin or
0: right. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Medieval
1: manuscript. So I think that kind of estranged uh, relationship to your objects of study can be a real strength because I think as a historian, one of the real challenges, if you're really going to do your job well, is um, is to uh, enter into, uh, uh, to, to to really excavate, in a sense, aspects of a feature that may look continuous to the reality. You still inhabit 100 years later, right. but to capture that strangeness and uh, the, the ways in which it doesn't. Um, and to at least to have the patience required to really treat it as if you were treating an archaeological relic from five centuries or 30 centuries ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that was, I think there was a lot of value in that. Also, I think the, the larger, um, uh, uh, just the, the, the sort of respect that as a medievalist, you And a classicist, one probably could say the same of that you inevitably develop for, uh, well, the need for uh, kind of dogged and complex forms of research and analysis that um, precisely mm-hmm. because of the, the limited intelligibility of a lot of the cultural forms that you have to somehow make sense of. Right. Uh, that you can't assume anything and that you need to look at any given cultural object from a multitude of different angles and somehow weave together all those different views and to a single view. Um, like, I think it was a good, it was a, in short, it was a very good uh, kind of training for me. It, it's been productive, even working on very contemporary stuff. Like, I don't
0: yeah. think
1: the way that a lot of my peers do when I approach something in part because my approach has been so conditioned by working with objects that are not accessible uh, to me and that have all these inbuilt right.
0: challenges. Yeah, it, it's that's interesting because for 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 two reasons, especially I I think a lot about graphic design history and how to better talk about that with my students and. I've talked about this with other people I've talked to on this podcast before, so I, I realize I'm probably sounding like a broken record a little bit. but <laughs> the the design history that I took when I was an undergrad was just slides of images and it was you know look at the drop cap on on this <laughs> or like here here, you know, here was this kind of illustration style. It was very surface level it was it was a history of style it was not a history of graphic design um and i i'm really interested in design history that is kind of pulling back a little bit and is looking at the cultural political economic circumstances that both made that work and then also that were influenced by Mm -hmm. that work uh and so in that video where you were talking about the digital humanities that i watched and i should have written this down because now i'm going to like mess up what you were (laughs) what you were saying but you, you said something to the effect of you know kind of realizing or or being conscious that all of these mediums are influencing how we are in the world um and I don't know if I really have a question there other than i'm yeah. try, i'm trying to figure out how to connect that to graphic design because I am fully on board with what you're talking about uh, and i feel like often and this is a blanket statement but that graphic design is kind of not on that boat when it should be yeah <laughs> you know what I mean
1: yeah, yeah no i do I, I totally know what you mean and and I see it in the form of um, if i look at look around at um, uh, at the the even some really wonderful work that I see the the tendency for people to uh group designers to find a particular vein that they're that, that they kind of that they've like that somehow matured in their own practice and then just stick to that
0: yeah yeah, yeah. you
1: know and that suggests a a, a a relinquishing of a certain what what to me seems like the a core, core component of the adventure, which is
0: right, yeah. to
1: keep messing stuff up. Right, kind of, right, you know? exactly. <laughs> to keep messing it up because of the pressures that uh, different kinds of communication challenges pose and the different demands that they make, you know, so that uh, having your own little house style, so to speak, mm-hmm. in the end isn't the most productive way it may right. be, you know, commercially viable, but it, it probably ultimately from a purely design standpoint is, is not going to be the most thriving sort right. of approach. And, uh, yeah, no, I do think that what's to me really attractive and exciting about being engaged in a design practice is that, you know, we, what you are ultimately doing is designing experience, right? You know, you're mm-hmm. designing a sensory experience of one kind or another. And, uh, you know contrary to what we sometimes as humans sometimes like to imagine that that we are these like giant brains attached to a you know <laughs> sort of walking system um, the reality is that our knowledge doesn't come from just screens or from you know texts or from other similar sources but is deeply multi-sensory and so right. you know i really do believe that design even down to the most micro levels of detail you know, is a shaping uh, conditioning force within the way that these experiences are uh, take place and their levels of success or failure. Um, So. uh, So, yeah, I do think that there are real consequences that they might be really uh, invisible consequences to us. They're hard to capture. But 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 I do think that there is something very central at stake that's easy to forget. Uh, I think particularly when you're caught up in the midst of one of these practices as a professional and constantly under deadlines and a million other constraints. But, right. but I think it's what we should pinch ourselves and, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, should continue to engage our energy and, and you know, ener- enthusiasm. Yeah. Yeah. about the these practices because I, I really do think that they matter and you know some of my scholarly peers at a place like harvard i'm not sure would agree with me i'm not sure they really care if their you know i won't mm. name a university press to, to to beat up on but you know their university <laughs> press books are, are appallingly typeset and just you know could easily have been cir- circulated in a pdf just as efficiently if not much more efficiently right. and expensively than um, but i i truly believe like I think most designers that uh, design really does matter and yeah. it's, a cri- it's a critical as well as a creative practice. Uh, and if we can make it more of both, that's good.
0: For right. Design. Kind of going off of that though. And, and kind of talking about how this stuff matters. I personally, and I think this is kind of, I'm not going to speak for every designer, but I feel like a lot of graphic designers, uh, since, since the election have reconsidered the role of graphic design in the world and how it functions and, uh, whether or not it is always a force for good, which I think graphic designers are sometimes kind of prone, (laughs) prone to think. And I, I think there's been kind of an awakening of the work we do isn't just style and can influence things. And maybe something that is kind of perfectly sleek is actually harmful, uh, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You could kind of go on with all of these different examples. And it's so it's kind of raised a new awareness or or started to ask questions that I think graphic designers haven't always asked. And I'm curious if someone like yourself kind of working and thinking deeply about design from a more academic side, but also thinking about media and technology, has... Has Have you sensed that change in your own work, in the students that you're working with, where, where these things are not theoretical, like they're, these are actually kind of affecting the world? Has that changed at all for you in the last couple of years?
1: Yeah, I, I think it has. I mean, I, certainly it's it's uh, – I've, I've felt very powerfully uh, that the kind of additional like pressures and stresses <laughs> around these – kinds of questions in the Berkman, uh, mm-hmm. Klein center community, which is a community that's very, you know, has very sensitive antennae <laughs> to, uh, these kinds of issues. And, um, yeah, one, one domain I could cite for, as an example, okay. yeah. uh, is, um, like one of the areas where, um, I lab that is, I think, Particularly well established is in creative and critical uses of data visualization, and data yeah. visualization has really become a kind of argumentative storytelling form that maybe the dominant one of our era, in a sense. If you look at, you know, the annual New York Times most you know consulted articles, there's almost always now right. in the top ten a couple of a visualization you know, stories. Um, and, and I think within that, the community, we, we have these conversations like in terms of our own work within MetaLab, often about precisely this kind of issue of like, yeah, we can make like beautiful eye candy yet again, Mm -hmm. but like to what end, like what, um, uh, like what, what maybe, maybe we need a little bit of like more grit and ugliness or like, do we expose, um, data anomalies rather than patterns, like what kind of stories do we tell? And I think the politics of that, the power yeah. dynamics of being engaged in a practice that's using highly aggregated, sometimes very large corpora of data, um, you know, has become acutely, you know, it's, it, it ever more kind of acutely present, I think, in conversations of people who are committed to these practices. So like what's a critical practice or one that exposes or educates people, right. like it's limited to educating people about how to look intelligently um, at the, um, the, the, the expert use of these kinds of tools. So, yeah, I would say absolutely. That's just one example. But, um, yeah, I think that there really is a, an awareness. And I think this point that you brought up earlier about the sort of neutral you know, <laughs> right. Yeah. The neutral stance of the designer is just a, a a kind of position that we we really have to look at yeah hard, long and hard because yeah. um, it's not neutral you right. know we're we're working in the service of something so let's. Uh, integrate into our design practice uh, those values that we are committed to, because uh, d- to do anything but that is is to advocate other values.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I have two more questions, and, and both of these questions are, are questions that I always end these conversations with. And this first one is one that I'm actually kind of nervous to ask you because of how how diverse your interests are. But I'm I'm really curious. What are the topics that you're especially excited about? right now? Or, or where is where is your research kind of focused at the moment? Um,
1: I would say uh, a couple of things. One, um, I'm very uh, engaged and uh, excited right now about the use of um, of AI mm. uh, for the analysis of cultural corpora. Uh, in other words, uh, museum collections, other kinds of data oh, sets. Um, but not because of what typical proponents of AI are interested in. I'm actually almost as much, if not more interested in, in how machines generate, um, you know, uh, how how machines don't see objects, art objects, in particular cultural art objects, the way that we do as humans, especially as informed humans. In other words, to use AI based and machine vision, um, in ways that, could uh, enrich and expand curatorial practice in particular. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm not so interested, I'm not an art historian, and I'm not so interested particularly in art history as a field, but rather in using these techniques as a kind of expanded framework within which to look at large numbers of, uh, of art objects and to try to tell the kinds of stories that one does as a curator, but maybe um, using the estranged gaze of an algorithm
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, to, to look at them differently. So um, sort of again, playful generative uses of these techniques to look at large uh artistic databases, visual databases. So that's that's one area where we have a project that's just starting up right now. I have a collaboration with a couple of museums in Italy. We're Mm. thinking about doing a show eventually using facial recognition technologies around portrait collections from Renaissance to the present, that kind of stuff. Um I continue to be really also excited about books. I know it sounds like a, a, a strangely anachronistic uh, focus, <laughs> but I, I really think that that the the book uh, is not of the past, but is of the present. And yeah. that there's a lot of really um, great opportunities to, to do exciting things with the codex as a format, with the, the you know, to really, um, experiment with the book in ways that um, leverage the power of the kinds of technologies we have available to us to make arguments and tell stories and create experiences that um, are meaningful and different from the conventional ones we've come to associate even with scholarly books. So those are two domains in particular that I remain yeah. um, that I'm, I'm, excited about the book. The second one is one that's more of a, as you know, right. from bio, more of a longstanding one, the AI one is, um, it's been a kind of thread in the work MetaLab has done from the beginning, but maybe not quite as visible.
0: Yeah, I love that. Both of those are, are yeah. so interesting for, for different reasons, like you said. And it, it leads into my last question. And again, this is one that it, it f- feels strangely hard to ask you this question, but I'm curious you know, who are the, who, who do you read or who are the writers that you're kind of drawn to or find yourself returning to again and again, or, or even maybe not writers. Maybe it is like, what are the books that have kind of influenced you or that are on your reading list?
1: Um, you know, I, ever since, uh, writing the, the electric information age book, I've had a kind of, you know, Sort of come to McLuhan moment. Um, <laughs> I, I, I spent a lot of years disliking McLuhan, um, think, thinking he was overrated as a right. thinker. But um, but uh, I, I I've I haven't entirely changed my mind in that regard. I still I, I, I still think he's a in many ways a limited um, thinker, more of a synthesizer perhaps than an original mm. thinker. But but I do find mm. that as I go back to his work, I teach Understanding Media. Oh nice. Uh, every now and then in courses that I, uh, that I teach here at Harvard, um, that, that actually there's, 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 there's some gold nuggets there that continue to, to engage my interests. Um, but, uh, I would say, um, no, aside from McLuhan, I mean, I certainly, I, I don't read a, a huge amount of theory, but when I do, it tends to be oriented towards the sciences. Okay. Uh, I've been just recently reading, rereading some Bruno Latour, which I, oh, I really like
0: nice. yeah. on the
1: laboratory, just because I, I think a lot about, uh, research models of research, Yeah. you know, s- structures and communities. Um, and uh I, I would say the rest of my reading list is pretty is pretty literary <laughs> okay <laughs> i've just say, i've been rereading um, C- uh cervantes uh oh, right. who is one of my 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 key model authors going back to my undergraduate years uh and and find him an infinite uh source of uh I love that. of really of, of of imaginings of all kinds so um so yeah, it's pretty eclectic, as you probably could have guessed. <laughs> that
0: was that was my thought. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, but uh, but yeah, no. Fortunately, there's so much more to read. That uh, that's right. a, a question to which the answer is uh, is is, is uh, always a work in progress. Right? Yeah.
0: I mean, and that's that's why I always end these conversations asking that question, is because I like my reading list isn't long enough already i like to always kind of you know get a couple more out of, out of each of these um, this was this was so great this was i i enjoyed this a lot like i said i'm a big fan of of just the way you kind of think about all of this stuff and have found uh it very influential on in the way i think about my own practice and so i'm glad we finally got to do this thanks for yeah, being on the podcast it was
1: it's it my pleasure jared i look forward to uh to continuing the conversation at some
0: point This episode was recorded on November 2nd, 2018. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.